Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to have you here. Uh, so is there a game today? Not that I'm aware of. Uh, well, it's good to have you here. So we are uh, making our way through the book of James. And if you have your Bibles, you might turn it to chapter 3 or it's in your notes. And so we are just kind of breaking into chapter, I think this is message 14. We're just kind of getting into chapter 3 and it's going to take a, a little bit of a turn. But James is talking about faith and he's talking about the fact that faith works. His whole point that he's been drilling on, uh, down on up to this point is that a real faith, a saving faith, is more than just words. It's something that's dynamic. It's something that changes you. It's something that grows you. It's something that, that pushes you. It, it takes you into places that you would not normally go. Real faith is uncomfortable. All of these things. And, and James has been talking about how a real faith, a saving faith, makes a difference in our trials. It, it makes a difference in the hard times that we will all go through. It makes a, a difference in the difficulties. It, it makes a difference in how we treat other people. And today, James is going to say that nowhere does faith make more of a difference than in the words that come out of our mouths, the things that we say to other people. Because you and I both know that our words are powerful. Our words have the ability to impact and affect relationships. Our words can make or break our reputation. They even set, as a video said, and as James will say, the, the actual course, the, the direction of our life. And so as we break into chapter 3, James begins with, a, with an interesting sentence here. He says, Now not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with, with greater strictness. Now, James isn't saying uh, we don't need more uh, like uh, public school teachers. That's not his point. He's not talking about that. He's talking about people who teach in the church, especially those who preach. And so I, some of you, for instance, I'm not the only preacher in this church. Some of you preach. We have people in our church who are retired pastors. We have people who, who go and preach in other churches. And he's speaking to you, but he's also speaking to many of you because we have a lot of people in our church who teach the word. Some of you uh, lead Bible studies. Some of you work in kids' ministry or children's ministry, youth ministry, and you teach. Uh, some of you are grow group leaders, and so you teach the word there. Some of you are involved as, as counselors. Um, some of you are, are parents, and so hopefully you're teaching the word of God at times to, to your kids. And teaching the word, he says here, comes with accountability. So kind of the main point he wants to make is before you open your mouth and you speak uh, for God, you speak on God's behalf. And there's a lot of people who do that without really thinking about it, without even really going to God. He just says, before you speak on God's behalf, you better make sure that what you're saying actually comes from God because there will be judgment for this. So we need to take it seriously. While a lot could be said about this, I think the, the next verse explains the problem and where we really want to go today. And so James is going to talk about what we're going to call a, a not-so-small problem. It is a small problem. In fact, it's kind of a two-and-a-half-ounce problem, James is going to say, but it's a, it's a big problem as well. So in verse 2 is where we kind of dig into what we want to talk about today. James says, and he's speaking to us, he says, For we all stumble in many ways. So that's every one of us in this room. We all stumble in a lot of ways. And if anyone does not stumble particularly in what he says, in the words that come out of his mouth or her mouth, then that is a perfect person who is able to bridle or to control their entire body. So James is going to, he's going to do an interesting thing. He kind of, he kind of dangles out hope and then he takes it away and he dangles it out and he takes it away. You'll see where he goes there. So first he kind of takes it away. He says, so we all stumble. 
So the, the word stumble there means to sin. So we're all imperfect and we're all in sinner, or we're all sinners, every one of us, um, including our words, the words that come out of our, our mouths. And he says here, but if you don't stumble in what you say, then you're perfect, or the word here is just a mature, you're a mature person, but of course, the problem is that none of us are perfect. He's already made that point clear. So he's just trying to help us understand we have, we have a problem. And so James is gonna do what he does well. He's gonna paint a couple of word pictures for us to kind of help us understand what we're talking about here. In verse three, he says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses, so people back then would have been very familiar with a horse and, and how to ride a horse and control a horse and use it to plow a field. If someone puts bits into the mouth of a horse so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. So, so James was talking about the kind of horses people would have been familiar with back then, horses that Roman soldiers would have ridden or horses that you would use to get work done around your place, maybe to plow a field. These would be large horses, 2,000, 2,200 pounds. These are horses that would gallop about 25 to 30 miles an hour. Uh, they could outmuscle you, they could outrun you and if you didn't know how to control them, they could do serious harm to you as well. And then James says, but you know the thing about a horse is if you train it well, you can take a, a small small bit, like compared to the rest of the horse, very small, and you can put it in its mouth, and you can control. You could, put a, you could put a 70 pound kid on the back of that horse and if they knew what they were doing, they could control the entire horse. They could control the direction and the speed of the horse. A little thing controlling something big. He wants to give us a, another illustration, verse four. So think about a ship also. Now the ships back then were a little different than today. Uh, cargo ships today are huge. They weren't that big back then, but, but they would have been relatively large. So he says, think of a ship and people would have probably thought of a large uh, merchant cargo ship or they might have thought of a, of a Roman warship. And he says, so look at ships and though they are large, and driven by strong winds. They are guided by a very small rudder, relatively speaking, a small piece of wood on the back of the boat, and it would take the ship wherever the will of the pilot directs. So again, he says, large vessel, small rudder, the entire vessel is going to travel in the direction that the rudder takes it. And then he wants to make the, the point for you and me. So also the tongue, it's, it's like that. It's like a bit in a horse's mouth, it's like the rudder of a ship. It's very small compared to the rest of your body. Uh, average tongue, about two and a half ounces. This muscle that's in your, in your body, it's small and yet it boasts of, of great things. So the tongue is small compared to the rest of the body. It's like a bit, it's like a rudder. It has a disproportionate amount of power over the rest of the body. It brags and it boasts and it says things that, that have an impact on the whole rest of your body. The mouth could utter something that could get the face punched. So it has a lot of, a, and it has a lot of ability over term for what happens. And so he wants, to, he wants to talk about this. So he's gonna paint another picture. He says it's a, it's a small problem, but it's not such a small problem. And then, and then he wants to talk about what he's gonna call that. We're gonna call it the danger of verbal arson. All right, and in verse five, here's how he puts it. Again, when we think about the tongue, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire, by a, by a spark, by, by a match, by just clicking a lighter for a moment. So many of you were here and you can remember the Eagle Creek fire that we had back in September. Um, started September 2nd at four o'clock in the evening. And by the next morning, it had burned 3,000 acres. 3,000 acres were destroyed overnight. By the time that it was done, it had burned over 49,000 acres. Now it started with one small spark, 
that burned 49,000 acres. 176 hikers had to be rescued. Countless trees and wildlife were destroyed that will take a long time to grow back. 1,800 people were evacuated from their homes. You, you remember the air quality was so bad for a couple of weeks. It was hard to go outside and, and do anything, exercise or work in your yard. $20 million to fight that fire. One small spark, $20 million. Local businesses say they've lost between two to three million dollars because of that fire. A uh, hundred or a thousand sixty people uh, personnel were used to put out that fire, and it closed trails that are still closed to this day. And all of this started just with one spark. Right now, you've probably read it was a we know it was a teenager who started the fire that we don't know who it is. And I've I've read some pretty harsh like there's some people who thought this kid should be thrown in jail and he should throw away the key and people had a lot of different opinions but but think about this do you think that the kid who who started that spark that lit that fuse that that threw that firecracker into the brush and started that fire do you think that kid knew what that one spark would produce and I would submit there's no way he could have known what it would have done James is just saying this you and I need to understand that the words that come out of our mouth are a lot like that an ill-spoken word from you can spark a wildfire that can destroy the things around it. You can make a Facebook post that can start a wildfire. A, a comment in public, a word of gossip, a word of criticism and, and frustration, an angry word that comes out of your mouth. And, and here's the thing, just like the, the, the fire that we saw, when, once the fire begins, once the, the spark begins and, and it's thrown down in the brush, it, it's out of your control. Right? It, it, it's impossible for you to predict what your words will produce in, in the world around you. And once those words go out of your mouth, you can never take them back. They're out of your control. While you're thinking those words, that's under your control. While those words make their way to your mouth, that's under your control. But once those words come out of your mouth, once you say that thing to your spouse, to your kids, to your friends, in your church, in your neighborhood, they're out of your control. You cannot stop the wildfire that begins. And that's the point that James is trying to make to us. In verse six, he says this, and the tongue is a fire. It's a, it's a world of unrighteousness. That, that's a bad thing, in case you're wondering. The tongue is set among our members. It, it stains the whole body. See, he has a very negative picture of the tongue here. Setting on fire the entire course of life, and just in case, that isn't bad enough, and it's set on fire by, by what? By hell. He says, setting on fire the entire course of life. So the words that we say can, can set our relationships on fire. Right? Some of you know that's true. It can set your marriage on fire. It can, it can burn your kids. It can destroy your reputation, right? Or your integrity. Words can destroy opportunities that you otherwise would have hoped for. It can ruin your job. It can ruin your health. It can ruin your finances. And here's what he says in case you don't get it. It's set on fire by hell itself. Now, that word hell here is the word Gehenna, 
which kind of has a, a rich history. It was actually a, a place, a location outside of Jerusalem that existed for many years. It, it was actually a place where people would go out and offer false sacrifices to their gods. Even child sacrifices were taking place there. And eventually, it was turned into a garbage dump where garbage from Jerusalem and surrounding cities would be taken out. And even the, the bodies of people who had died and didn't have any family to claim them. And there was a fire that burned 24-7 in Gehenna. And this was used as an illustration of, of hell. James used it. His big brother Jesus used it as well. And the point he wants to make is this. There is an irony in our life for those of us who are believers. The irony is this. Jesus came to this earth and he died on a cross for us so that we wouldn't have to face judgment and we wouldn't have to go to hell. And we've been rescued from that. But the irony is that sometimes through our words, we bring hell into the world in which we exist. In other words, as a believer, you're not going to hell, but you can unleash it. You can unleash hell in the lives of others through the words that you say. You can bring hell into your home. That, that's his point. Like, why would anybody want to do that? And yet, he says at times we do that with our words. Hell into your friendships, into your workplace, into your classroom, into your church or your, or your grow group. And there's a lot of ways the Bible says that we can do this. One of the obvious ways is just by telling lies, by saying things to people that aren't true and we know they're not true. The Bible calls that bearing false witness. Part of that is, is slander. Slander is when you say something about someone else that isn't true and you know it isn't true and your desire is to hurt them. It's to wound them. It's to ruin their reputation publicly. In our current culture right now, you know that, that you could literally set someone's life on fire by making certain accusations. Isn't that true? Right now, you could accuse somebody, for instance, of sexual assault and in our, in our culture right now, you don't need any proof. You're just, you're just guilty until proven innocent. And so scripture says we should not tell lies about one another. And another word that we find in scripture a lot is the word gossip. And the word gossip literally means to whisper. So it's not stuff you would say loudly because you might get in trouble for that. So you'll whisper it. You'll whisper false accusations. You'll say to someone, you know, this, this isn't gossip. This is a prayer request, right? I, I just want, I, I don't even know if it's true, uh, but this is what I heard. And so I just want to tell you because I know that you'll, you'll pray about it, you know? Um, it's confidential. So, so don't, don't, don't tell anybody. We, we whisper, right? Whenever we have to whisper to say things to people, that's probably a clue right there that we're going down a wrong road. The Bible talks about flattery a lot. Think about flattery. So we often don't do this. Gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face. Flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. You're looking for ways to manipulate them. Your motives are impure. They're insincere. And there are a lot of other ways, Scripture says, that, that we speak uh, these kind of words, these hurtful, these words that start wildfires in our lives. There's ill-intentioned criticism, right? Not helpful criticism, but criticism to hurt, criticism to cut, Criticism, you, you know, to beat somebody down. There's sarcasm. And I know sarcasm is just so accepted in our, in our culture today, but you know, a lot of sarcasm is, it's kind of a tool where it's very impure. It's, it's a way for us to kind of, at times, um, to make fun of someone, but to laugh about it so it doesn't look like what it really is. What it really is, is I want to hurt you. I want to cut you, but I want to laugh about it so that it would be more socially acceptable. There's things like, comparing. The Bible talks a lot about what happens when we compare people to each other and how, how 
terrible that can be. There's crude humor. There's words that tear down the faith of others. There's angry words. There's filthy words, which our culture tends to exalt. And, and the worst of all is blasphemy, where we attribute God with evil, where we call evil good and good evil. And here's what James says here. He says, just think about this for a minute. He says, every kind of beast and bird and reptile and, and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So now he just gets right down to it. He says, and I've kind of been saying, maybe can, maybe can't, maybe can't. No, you can't. You cannot tame the tongue. No one, no one can do it. And if you're here this morning going, well, I've learned how to tame the tongue, then James would have some words for you. Now think about this. He says, we've tamed every kind of animal. So I grew up in Southern California. We go to SeaWorld. I remember like going to SeaWorld and seeing killer whales and dolphins that have been trained, you know, to jump over stuff. And I remember thinking how crazy that was or going to the, going to the circus and seeing tigers and lions that you could control. When my kids were young, we went to this safari thing. Maybe some have done that. I put my young kids on the back of an elephant and they kind of steered that elephant, like just little kids on a big elephant. And this is what humanity has done. We've learned how to tame every kind of animal, except my cat. We have not done that yet, but every other animal we have done. Uh, and then, you know, not only that, but as human beings, we, we've tamed a lot of powerful addictions in our lives as well. I know some of you have tamed alcoholism, uh, you know, drugs, gambling, physical rage, but this two and a half ounce muscle, this, this tongue, he says, is untamable. You cannot do it. You cannot tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. It's, it's restless. It's always looking for an opportunity and it never rests to unleash its venom and to destroy. And so you know, what do we do about this? Because James seems really negative at this point about the words that come out of our mouth. And what James wants us to understand is he wants us to understand the heart of the problem. And the heart of the problem is the heart. See, the point he wants to make is this, the problem isn't the tongue. Because the tongue can't say anything on its own. The problem is the heart. In verse 9, he says it this way. So with the tongue, we bless our Lord, we bless our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. And my brothers, these things ought not to be so. So James is a pastor. He's noticed something interesting in his church. People come to church on the weekend. You know, they, they sing some songs and people are praising God and they got hands in the air. And then um, they had this thing they would do back then. If someone would mention the name of God, people would say, blessed be his name. So they'd bless the name of God, literally. And they would be singing praises and worship and maybe they'd share um, something about God they appreciated. They would magnify. That's a biblical word to, to magnify and make his name uh, big. And then after church, Maybe James noticed that people would get, you know, they get in their chariots and they'd be driving down, you know, E Street and it'd be like, I don't know, a chariot, so it's like eight miles an hour and maybe someone's going five and you'd get really frustrated and so they'd like yell, you know, like get off the road, loser, or there'd be some kind of road rage going on, just harsh words and James is noticing like mean-spirited criticism that's going on between believers. There's gossip, you know, there's like nasty Facebook posts and people are slandering one another and, and they're setting each other's worlds on fire and they can't take it back, they can't control it anymore. And, and so James is just saying to, to go to church and say, well, God, I love you. And then to go outside of church and to curse somebody, to speak ill of somebody, to put down someone. 
He says this is a sinful contradiction because you're putting down people that were created in the image of God just as you were and people that Jesus died for just like he died for you. And so he puts it this way in verse 11. He says, does a spring pour forth the same, from the same opening both fresh and salt water? So this would have been you know, common for them. He could say, you know, imagine going to a spring where you get water or, or drawing water from a well. You ever had the experience where you go to a spring and one day it's fresh water and the next day it's salt water and you're like, I never know what it's going to be. James says, no, it's always one thing. It's salt water or it's fresh water. It doesn't, it doesn't change. He says, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Right? No, a, a fig tree only produces figs. Uh, or a grapevine produce figs. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So I have uh, two apple trees and a pear tree in my backyard. Strangest thing ever. The apple trees have only ever produced apples and the pear has only ever produced pears. It's all they ever do. I, every year it's the same thing. You know, that's what James is saying. It's like, that's, don't be surprised. That's, that's the way it works. Now, what he's trying to do is illustrate something about you and me and our mouth. In fact, he's echoing what his big brother said. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 15, 18. But what comes out of the mouth, here we go, what comes out of the mouth, like what comes out of a spring, what comes out of a mouth proceeds from the what? From the heart. And this is what defiles a person. It's not what comes out of the mouth that defiles you. It's what's in your heart that defiles you. The heart is mentioned over 900 times in the Bible. And the heart is a reference towards the spiritual center of a person. So the big idea here is this. Whatever comes out of my mouth okay, reveals what's in my heart. Now, we spend a lot of time trying to convince ourselves otherwise. Right? How many times have we tried to... Have you ever heard someone say, you don't know me, you can't know my heart? And James would say, yes, I can know your heart. All I have to do is listen to your words. Have you ever heard someone say, after they said something terrible, say, oh, I don't know why I said that. That's not like me. James would say that's actually exactly like you. Remember a couple weeks ago, Pastor Bill talked about the person who looks at himself in the mirror and turns around and forgets what they saw. This is what James is saying. You people have been deceiving and fooling yourselves because mean, bitter, vile things come out of your mouth and then you say, oh, well, that's not me. Oh, well, you don't know me. And James says, you know what? The only person fooled here is you. Nothing can come out of your mouth that doesn't exist in your heart. James is saying we need to, we need to own this. As one writer put it, the tongue is a tattletale on the heart. So if your heart is filled with pride, you're going to have proud words that come out. If your heart is filled with unforgiveness, you're going to have unforgiving words. And when you, you know, if your heart is filled with bitterness, bitter words are going to come out. And when bitter words come out of your mouth, you don't need to look surprised and go, oh, I can't believe I said that. If you can't believe you said it, then it's because you're self-deceived. If anger is in your heart, if jealousy is in your heart, if judgmentalism is in your heart, that's what's going to come out of your mouth. A tongue problem is actually a heart problem. And if you want to change your words, you have to change your heart first. That's the point. Here's why you can't tame the tongue. Because the tongue has never been the problem. The problem is the heart. So what do we do about the heart? 
Now, James is going to have more to say about the tongue in a, in a few weeks. But I, I don't want to just leave you here like, oh, no, I'm just going to have to duct tape my mouth. And like, there's actually something that we can do. And so I want to talk. This is the whole point of the book, okay? Putting your faith to work. So what does our faith have to do with the words that come out of our mouth? Well, let me suggest a couple of things here. The first thing about faith in your mouth and your heart is this. You've got to get a clean heart. So what scripture says is that the, the heart is, is naturally deceitful and, and wicked and we need a new one. We don't just need a, a rebuilt heart. We don't just need an improved heart. We need a new heart. We need a clean heart. And this is what God does for us. The psalmist says this, create in me a clean what? Heart. God, I need a clean heart. God, I can't do that on my own. Give me a clean heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. And this is the work that God does in us when we trust Jesus. I mean, this, so this is part of the gospel right here. The gospel is simply this, that, that God created us in his image, loved us, but we sinned against him. We turned our backs on him. So Jesus came down, God in the flesh came down, lived among us, lived a perfect life, including speaking all the right words at all the right times, went to the cross where he took your sin and mine and he died for our sin and he offers us a gift. Scripture says he died on the cross according to scriptures. He was buried and he rose on the third day according to scriptures and he offers a free gift to us and that free gift is if we will just believe him. Not just we said last week, not just believe in him. A lot of people believe in God but we're talking about believing God. If we will believe him, if we will believe what he said, and if we will trust in him alone for salvation. So what scripture says is, and what Jesus said is, you're not saved by, you know, some stuff I did for you and some good works or rituals or religion. It's, we're saved by faith alone. And when that happens, when we put our faith in Christ, he comes in and he forgives us of our sin and he cleanses us. He gives us a, a clean heart. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to cleanse us from pride, to cleanse us from selfishness, from anger in our heart and jealousy and insecurity and lust and greed. So we gotta get a new heart. And then once we get a new heart, what do we do? Here's the second thing in your notes. We wanna take this whole issue to God daily. Gonna, I always think it's good before you, when you wake up in the morning, before any words come out of your mouth, to talk to God. And say, you know what, God, today I'm living in a world where a lot of words that are being spoken are not good, they don't honor you, and I want to be careful that my words honor you and that they're a blessing to my spouse and a blessing to my kids and a blessing to the people in my world. And so I need your help, God. Would you, would you do that for me today? Here's the, what the psalmist says. He says, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. That's pretty good. So God, I need your help here. Keep watch over the door of my lips. I need your divine help. I need the, the power of your spirit in me. In Philippians, it puts it this way. And I, I love this, what, what, what Paul says here in Philippians 4, 6. Because there's a connection here. He says this, don't be anxious about what? Anything. Now watch this. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So Paul begins by going, you know, God's will for you isn't that you be anxious, isn't that you be worried, isn't that you be stressed or uptight. Now, God knows that you live in an anxious uptight, stressful world. He, he knows that. But he wants to give you something else in your heart. So here's what you do. You, you pray. You give all your worries and your concerns and your anxiety to God. And then here's what happens. I love this. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, right, so it goes kind of beyond our world, will guard your what? 
Your heart, yeah. It will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And here's the connection for me, and I just love this. When we pray for our heart, when we pray for God to guard our heart with peace, just think about this. Most of the words that come out of our mouth that are not God-honoring and not helpful for people around us, usually it's because we're stressed. Usually because it's, we're, we're insecure. It's because we're anxious. It's, it's because we're, we're proud. and being, We're proud because we, we don't trust God. So we've got we've to do all this for ourselves. And what this says is that God wants to guard our heart with peace. Now think about this. If your heart is at peace, and, and kind of the, the genesis of this is he's talking about peace with God. And once you're at peace with God, it makes it possible for you to be at peace, period. Now, if your heart is at peace, think about how that impacts your words. When you're in a stressful situation, but your heart is at peace, you don't have to speak harsh words because you're at peace. You don't have to speak insecure words because you're at peace. You don't have to speak words of pride because you're at peace. Just imagine having a heart at peace and how that would impact your words. Well, that's the second, second thing. We're going to pray for that. Here's the third thing. And that is you've got to get the word of God into your heart. So our culture wants to fill your heart and does fill your heart, fill my heart with all sorts of things like pride. You know, you've got to look out for number one. You've got to take care of yourself first. Greed. You've got to have that thing. You've got to buy that thing. You don't have that. God's not being fair to you. Lust, lies, unbelief, filth. Here's what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. He says, I have stored up your word in my, in my what? Heart, yeah, right, because the heart directs the mouth. So I've stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. That is, you know, again, get that in my heart. With my lips I will declare all the rules of your mouth. The psalmist is saying this, when I put God's word in my heart, it's what comes out of my mouth. See, there's two ways to do this. You can try to fake it. You can try to, you know, fake being spiritual, you can try to fake knowing the word of God or you can actually fill your heart with the word of God. When you fill your heart with the word of God, it suddenly becomes easy to speak the word of God and spiritual things to people. In Colossians, here's what Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Right? So not just five minutes a day or a sermon a week, but richly, deeply, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So he's saying you gotta get it in your heart. You gotta read it and you gotta read it a lot. You gotta listen to it. You gotta study it. You gotta get teaching. You gotta memorize it. I find memorizing the word of God and meditating is just probably the most powerful way to let God transform your heart. When you read it, and you move on and you forget it, that doesn't really help you. But if you memorize it, it becomes part of your being, part of your soul. It changes the words that come out of your mouth. You'll say helpful words and true words and gracious words and faith-building words that are so needed. Here's, a, here's the fourth thing. You gotta exercise your faith. So this is, a, you know, a lot of what we're talking about in this book. James says, if, if you have faith in Christ, that faith is real. That faith is dynamic. It impacts the way that you live your life. And here, he says it impacts your words. But you have a role to play. You, you need to work with God. You need to exercise your faith. In Colossians, he says it this way. Now, now you must put them away. So what should we put away? This is what you need to do. You need to get rid of things in your heart like, Anger and, and wrath, you need to put it away. Malice, slander, and obscene talk, and notice, from your mouth. 
Do not lie to one another. So when you feel angry words coming on, he says, you've got to put those away. Slander, put it away. Gossip, obscenities, lies, put it away. And then what do you do instead? So notice he starts by talking about the words that come out of your mouth, but then he moves on and he says this, and he puts it this way. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, here's what you put on. And I, and I love this. I love how he starts with the words of the mouth, but now he's going to give you the solution. So go to the heart. Here, go to the heart. Holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Here's what you need. Put on a compassionate heart. Kindness, humility, meekness. We'll talk a lot more about that next week. And, and patience, in bearing, bearing with one another, putting up with one another, being patient with one another. And if any one of you has a complaint against another, and of course that happens at times, and if that happens, you forgive each other. You forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. That's how you forgive each other. So also you must forgive. He's just saying if, if these things rule your heart, they will rule your words. If you have a compassionate heart, guess what kind of words you'll have? Compassionate words. It's not rocket science. Right, so if you've ever been like, you get up in the morning, you're like, you know, sometimes my words are so harsh and my, 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 my words are so mean, so today I'm going to work really hard on saying compassionate words. What he's kind of saying is this, it's not going to work. What you need is a compassionate heart. Yeah. If you have a kind heart, you'll speak kind words. If you have a humble heart, you'll speak humble words. If you have a patient heart and a forgiving heart, how do we get that? Again, we connect with the Lord Jesus Christ and we get his word into our heart. In Psalm 39, one, it says this, the psalmist says, and I, I love his self-awareness here, by the way. This, uh, one, of the, one of the challenges I faced this week was I never realized how much scripture there is that connects this whole idea of the heart to the mouth. So the hardest part was like all the verses we wouldn't use, but this one was so profound to me. The psalmist says this, he says, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, I like that, so long as the wicked are in my presence. Here's his point. Here's what he's saying here. The psalmist is saying, when I'm, at, when I'm with believers, it's easy for me to talk spiritual. When I'm at a Bible study, it's easy for me to talk spiritual. When I'm at church, it's easy to talk spiritual. But I got, some, I got some buddies that I get together with every now and then and they're not spiritual and foul stuff comes out of their mouth. And when I'm with them, sometimes I start to talk like they do. And so what he says is, God, when I'm there, you know, just help me. Just, just work this out for me because I know that I have a tendency to say words when I'm around those people. So help me with that. And then here's the last thing that I want to mention and that is don't try to do this alone. So you and I weren't meant to live our spiritual life alone or grow alone. We need a, we need a team. We went through Ecclesiastes this last spring and summer. And, uh, and Solomon said this, two are better than one because they will have a good reward for their toil. If, for if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to the one who is alone when he falls. Woe to the one who says a bad word. Woe to the one who starts a, a wildfire with his words, who says something to his spouse, who says something to his friends, who sins with his mouth. And there's not someone else there to lift him up, someone to help him. See, we need friends in our life who will help us with our words. We need friends who will pray for us. You need a few people that you can say, here's the struggle I have with my, with my words. Here's where it tends to be a struggle. Would you pray for me? Would you help me? You need people who will encourage you to say spiritual words. You need people who will 
hold you accountable when you start verbal fires. Who will say, hey, you need to stop talking right now or, you know, or that's not cool or that doesn't honor God. You need people who won't ignore your sinful words in order to keep the peace. You need people who won't laugh at the inappropriate things that you say, but who will lovingly stimulate verbal discipline in you and, and will help you in that area. We all need that. A verse that I've been loving for about the last six months is in Ephesians 4.29. Just a good general verse as we go from here today. Do not let any unwholesome talk, any at all, come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building up others according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. I love this verse. I feel like what Paul's saying is, you know, you have those people sometimes who will say, you know, I'm not rude. I just say it like it is. No, you're rude, okay? That's the problem, you're rude. What he's saying here is the words that come out of our mouth aren't about what I have the right to say or what I feel like I should say or what will justify me or because I just say it like it is. The words that come out of my mouth should be words that help other people, that build up other people, that will benefit other people. You know, sometimes I think we don't realize the power, the power of our words to shape the lives of, of people around us. Um, I'll, I'll close with this story. When, uh, when I was in college, so I, became a, I, I became a Christian as a freshman in high school, and I was not raised in a Christian home. And so for the four years that I was in high school as, as a new Christian, um, I was hassled a lot for my faith in my, in my home. Um, I was hassled every time I wanted to go to church. I was hassled when I was caught in my bedroom alone with the lights dim reading the Bible uh, or, you know, or, or praying and or wanting to go to maybe a youth retreat or something. And so anyways, I graduated from high school and I ended up going to uh, a, a Christian university. And so I don't know how else to put this. I felt like when I went there, I was, I was drunk on fellowship because uh, I had, it was the, cra- like to go to a Christian school where you're required to go to chapel. I was like, this is the coolest thing in the world where, where you are required to do daily devotions. What, what, it's a rule? I have to do my devotions. It's funny, there was a lot of kids on campus going, this is legalism. And I was like, this is awesome. This is so cool. Like, you're, you know, you're required. We were actually required. There, we would have these days where they would cancel classes and we would have to go out door to door and share our faith. And so many students hated it. And I was like, what? I'm, I'm, I get credit for this? Like, I just, so the first semester of school was, for me, was crazy. I was absolutely loving it, but I was just really into the fellowship, you know, into that aspect of it. And school, ah, uh, not so much. Classes, tests, homework, not so much. And it was getting near the end of the first semester, and I'll tell you, I was getting A's in fellowship, but I was not getting A's in classes. And I was, you know, the classes were kind of in the way. And so a couple of professors sat me down and said, you know, we love you, but you got to get this thing together. You you gotta, you gotta get your student thing together. Honestly, I went to grade school and high school. I never, I just didn't study. I was just did the homework and got the grades. Now I'm in college and it's not working out. And I'm really struggling with this. I don't know what to do. One day I'm in a class, I take a test, get the test back, didn't get a good grade. I'm going back to my dorm. And uh, there's a group of kids, students hanging out in front of the dorm and they're all talking about the test. And as I walk up, one of the guys who's there in the group, his name was John Hendricks. And John was a senior when I was a freshman and John was, I'm pretty sure, the smartest guy I knew. He was absolutely brilliant. And he would always call me Barnes. And so as I was walking, he's like, so what'd you get on the test, Barnes? 
And well, I didn't want to talk about what I got on the test because it wasn't good. I didn't want to talk about it. So I'm like, ah, oh, no, it was fine. I don't want to talk about it. He's like, yeah, you don't want to talk. He's like, I know you. He's like, I know your type. You're one of those guys. You don't have to study. You just, you know, you just go, you take the test, you get an A because you're a really intelligent, smart person. I know you. And I was like, now I, I was feeling really, I wasn't feeling very good at the time. I wasn't feeling very intelligent, quite frankly. So I was like, no, no, that's not me. And then he, he kind of locked eyes at me with me and he looked me right in the eyes. He looked at me and he said, you know what? Yes, you are. He's like, I know your type. You're intelligent. You're smart. You're an A student. And I remember thinking in that moment, if the smartest person I know thinks I'm intelligent, I don't know, maybe he's right. <laughs> and I got A's after that. The power of an encouraging word of an uplifting word. And you know the thing about it was? I don't know that he knew I needed that. See, and that's the truth. A lot of times there's people around you and you don't even know it. They look like they have it all together, but they're, they're starving for a good word, an encouraging word, an uplifting word. It could be your spouse. It could be your kids. It could be your mom or dad, a student. But see, here's the thing. You and I have the power. This isn't just a name. James isn't just saying, make sure you don't mess up with your words. He's saying you have great opportunity with your words. Wouldn't it be great someday if somebody comes back to you and says, you know, you were my John Hendricks. <laughs> you didn't even know it, but you said something to me that changed the course of my life. Thank you for doing that. And you might say, oh, that's weird, I don't even remember it. Because it's just, it came from your heart. Let's pray together.